Welcome back to the Walk the Word podcast coming out of SAR Fellowship in Bahrain with me, Pastor James. We are working through Genesis one chapter a week and today we get into Genesis chapter 8 where the waters of the great flood start to subside. If you've never read Genesis chapter 8, do go ahead and press pause. We'll come back to it together as we seek to know, as we seek to grow in the Word of God. So Genesis 8 begins, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. Now again, right off the bat here, we've got another anthropomorphism where we attribute to God human characteristics and abilities. We read, But God remembered Noah. I'm pretty sure we've said before that God is omniscient. That means he knows all there is to know. So can God forget Noah? Can God forget you or I? No, he can't. But we want to describe things. We want things described to us, rather, in terms that we understand. So we anthropomorphize God. We give him human characteristics and abilities to help ourselves basically understand. And it's, it's kind of like... You read or watch the weather and you hear or you read things like, um, you know, the sun will rise at 4.55 in the morning and the sun will set at 6 or 5 p.m. this evening. And, you know, as, a, as, a, as an educated, rational adult, you know that the sun is not moving across the sky throughout the day. You know that the earth is turning around and it's just our perspective that changes, but yet we're all quite all right with being told the sun will rise at 4.55 rather than at 4.55 the earth will turn to a point where the sun becomes visible above the horizon. So we do the same with God whether we know it or not. We read things like God remembered Noah. Of course he hasn't forgotten about Noah but um, again it's terms that we are most comfortable with. So God sends a wind, uh, God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. These waters are starting to go down. And uh, it took, as we read in the end of verse 3, 150 days for the waters to go down. We read in verse 4, in the seventh month of the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountain of Ararat. We kind of talked about that a little bit uh, last time with uh, all the evidence and findings and people that have seen the remnants of a, of a massive wooden pitch-covered boat up in the mountains of, uh, of Ararat. And we carry on and we read, and the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. So it took three months for the waters to go down over the top of the mountains. And we read in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Why did it come to rest on the top of a mountain. Again, I think it's one of those questions that intuitively we ask. Uh, it's one of those things that we can suggest answers for, that you know maybe up in the mountains the boat would be preserved and uh, people would, would find it and, and realize that these are not empty stories from a bygone era. We could suggest something like that, but, you know, bottom line, Lots of people say lots of things about the white spaces in the Bible. But really, we were better served putting stock and faith and trust in what we do read. So the waters abated and went down. And, you know, the Bible tells us that the boat, the ark, 
this massive floating box that Noah made over the course of a year came to rest in the mountains or on the mountains of Ararat between Turkey and Armenia now, I think. And as we continue, we read in verse 6, at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth the raven. So back in chapter 7 and chapter 6, we read of this um, opening window, skylight roof kind of thing that he'd made. And uh, he sends out a raven. And we read it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. But we don't read that it came back. Now, again, we could suggest that it was too early to send out the raven. It found nowhere to rest. It, it then couldn't find anywhere to, to sit, any food to eat, and it just dropped out of the sky and died. But we, just, we don't read what happened to the raven, but it didn't come back. So, obviously, the implication is that it, the waters had not gone down sufficiently yet. And then in verse 8, Noah sends out a dove to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him, to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So remember, the tops of the mountains are now visible, and it's obviously the, the, the water level is, is working down. So the first time the dove goes out, it comes back in, nowhere to sit, nowhere to rest, comes back to the ark. We read in verse 10 that Noah waited another week and he sent the dove out again. This time it comes back to him in the evening and it comes with what we read in the ESV was a freshly plucked olive leaf, which is often now used as a, as a symbol of peace, isn't it? You, know, you see a picture of a dove with an olive leaf in, a, in its mouth. But, you know, often it's a whole branch and uh, it might seem like a small thing, it's a leaf, it's a branch, but when you really think about it, a dove could never pull a branch off a tree. And it's a, again, it's not a massive deal. It's a symbol for peace. It's a symbol for, for restoration, for, for a new beginning. But it's when people are so close to what the scripture teaches, but actually so far away as well, and they fill in the gaps by themselves. So the Bible really clearly tells us that here's a dove with a leaf in its beak, not a whole branch. And again, it's, it sounds like a small thing, but it's representative of people taking most of what the Bible says and then, and then filling it in for themselves. And if we do that with, with some more important things, then you know, we find ourselves in, in real trouble. And we start to see then that the mountains are visible and now the water's going down enough and that there are, there are trees, there's vegetation visible. So Noah waits another week sends the dove out again, and it didn't come back to him as conclusive proof that the earth is now habitable again. And as we continue reading, we get to verse 13, and we see that in the 601st year, in the first month, first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. What a great thing for Noah and his family to see. Dry land again. By this time, if we look at the dates back in chapter 7, they've been in the ark for almost one full year. They've lived in this huge floating chest with tens of thousands of animals. We said um, that half the ark was big enough for over 100,000 sheep. There's so many animals, eight people in this thing for over a year. And what a great sight for them to look out and to see this new 
fresh world that they are about to go out and inhabit. And we read in verse 15, God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that there may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And we read that Noah went out and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. What a great moment for Noah and his family. A year in the ark and now they're told, off you go. Let's get out. Let's be fruitful and multiply. And then we see Noah's first act, Noah's first recorded act in this new, fresh, habitable again world is one of worship, is one of gratitude. We read in verse 20, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now here's Noah fresh into this new world. And... The the first thing he wants to do is is to show how grateful he is to God, to make a sacrifice to God, to give back some of what God has given him, to give it back as as a sacrifice. And I read that as is the nature of true sacrifice, this was a costly offering to God. With only seven of each animal on the ark, Noah risked extinction by sacrificing some of these animals, but costly sacrifice is pleasing to God. Now we read, don't we, that he sacrificed some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird. So again, you know, he's, he's not giving out of his excess. He's, he's, it's a true sacrifice. It's, it's a costly offering for him. And he's risking extinction by taking away some of what is a very small pool of animals. And you think about sacrifice, you think about us giving to God, and you think about what the full counsel of of God's word teaches about this. And passages come to mind like Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where we're to give our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. We're to give our resources to God as a sacrifice. We read in uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 18, Paul is writing... And he said, uh, I'm full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So we're called to give, we're called to sacrifice, we're called to to make costly sacrifices to God and his people. And we read in Hebrews chapter 13 that we give the sacrifice of praise to God. We read, therefore, by him, Let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And that's what worship should be about. That's what praise is about. It's not about singing songs that are about us. It's about worshiping God and giving God what he is is due. And again, so many passages come to mind. You think about the uh, the lady in the New Testament who gave those two small coins, and Jesus said, "Look, you know that that is a great sacrifice. She is giving. That's a great offering. She she is giving, not out of what she can spare. She's not giving out of what's left over at the end of the month. She's giving out of what what she what she doesn't have, what she needs 
to live on. And we think about, again, uh, another passage, 2 Samuel 24, 24. David is the, the, the key figure here, and he's speaking. Somebody's offered something to David, and he says, No, I will surely buy it from you for a price. And he goes on to say, Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So when we give to God out of our excess, when we give and we don't notice that we are giving it, the full counsel of God's word would tell us that that's not the kind of sacrifice God wants. We should give, we should tithe. Yes, it's a biblical thing. It's not just in the Old Testament. Jesus references it in the New Testament. It says, yes, you should still be doing this. We should give to God. We should give to his church, but not out of our excess. Noah sets the, the bar really high here. He gives out of stuff that he really needed. You know, he could have done a lot with these animals. He, his task is to, to repopulate the earth, so, you know, every little helps. But he gives this true sacrifice. He gives this costly offering. And this is obviously pleasing to God. We read in verse 21, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So what a, what a wonderful example of the tremendous love for his creation, love for his people that God has, and, and a, a tremendous example of his, his never-ending, limitless mercy as well. God says, I will never again curse the ground because of men, you know, even though I know the intention of men's heart is evil. He knows that we are sinners. He, he knows what we are like. He knows the consequence of us living in a fallen world. But he says, I will never again curse or I will never again dishonor the ground because of men. So he will never again wipe out his creation because of how bad and sinful people have got. And in verse 22, very interesting, it looks like, it appears like this is the institution, this is the beginning of seasons on the earth. Again, while the earth remains, uh, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So as long as there is an earth to live on until Jesus comes again and transforms the whole thing, while ever we're in this in-between period where Jesus has been and we are waiting for him to come again, while ever we're in this in-between period, there will be seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, there will be a regular pattern to life on earth. So Genesis chapter 8 then, Noah, his family and the animals are out of the ark. The animals are given the command to come out, to swarm, to go off and, and, and be animals and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And uh, Noah gets the same commandment in chapter 9 next week. But for today... Genesis chapter 8, what a great chapter showing God's mercy, showing us a model for, for giving, for sacrifice, and just a, a wonderful chapter of showing how God feels 
about his creation, how he wants to act in relation to his creation. Next time then in Genesis chapter 9, we see the commands to Noah and his family to be fruitful and multiply. We see this new world that is beginning to be repopulated. And we see that despite his triumph and obedience, Noah is just like you and me. He's just a regular human being with human weaknesses. But until then, God bless. Thank you.